Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Connect on blogtalkradio.com. Catch us on the web at umconnect.info. Welcome to this episode of Connect. I'm Michael Rich, the Web and Communications Manager for the Western North Carolina Conference. Today's guest is Talbot Davis. He's the pastor of He graduated from Princeton University in 1984. Then was not on the conference since then. Uh, he had nine years at Carmel Midway and has been at Good Shepherd in Charlotte since 1999. He has a host of books available for Cokesbury, and we're going to hear more about them today. So um, we're going to welcome Howard to the show, and hopefully he can hear me. We've been having some difficulties. Thanks for having me, Michael. We're trying to do our best. I'm just going to let him pop in. So... Um, tell us a little bit about your beginning. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Um, what was your childhood like? Yeah, the the uh, and and there's a, a Methodist element in all of that. But ironically enough, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and uh, our family did not go to church when I was young. And though my father taught law at SMU, Southern Methodist hmm. University. And so I grew up going to all of SMU's football and basketball games and living in walking distance of that campus and uh, wanting to play on their football or basketball or later play on their tennis team. And um, so I've just always thought that even though I did not go there for college, that somehow God was using that positive association with Methodism with that university in kind of preparing for how the rest of my life would turn out. There, Talbot. I am still here, and I am so sorry that I I cannot hear what you're saying. Okay. Um, our best. Um, tell us about your call into ministry. Sure. I I came to faith when I was later in high school through the influence of a friend, and ultimately I didn't go to that SMU for college. I was a tennis player. Uh, highly ranked and and uh, in, in Texas and nationally, and um, I had also done pretty well in school, and so both Princeton and Harvard wanted me to come play on their tennis teams. And at, at first glance, I had no interest in leaving Texas and going up to one of those kind of schools, living up where it was so cold and people lived in such a rush, but. Ultimately, I, I kind of realized my chances of being a pro tennis player are pretty small, and that Princeton had a not only a really good tennis team, but was going to offer a great education and uh, set me up well for life, as they would say. So I, I ended up going there as a pretty new Christian, and I got connected with a strong fellowship group there on campus, and I made some friends. And I, then I began to, a couple years in, I dated a young woman who. 35 years later, I'm still married to, but she was the one, uh, having seen something in me about the seriousness with which I followed the faith, she was the first one to suggest it to me about going to seminary and going to ministry. 
And uh, at, at that time, I, I literally, I, didn't, I did not know what a seminary was. I didn't know how long it took. And so that was fun right there, just discovering all uh, about seminary education and and uh, learning as much as I could, even in college, about scripture and history of the faith. And so I was leaning that way towards ministry. And then a year or so after graduation from college and getting married, I remember thinking, no, I don't want to go into ministry. I had a job in the in the tennis business up there in New Jersey, and it was a good job. And and so I was going. To, this is in the mid '80s. I was like, I'm just going to live a yuppie life up here in the Northeast. A couple of years after that, I had really kind of a reconversion to faith, a recommitment to my faith, and I realized that everything that I was learning at my job would be applicable to ministry. And we were volunteering at Princeton United Methodist Church in the youth ministry department, and, and I was really feeling feeling a connection there. And so it was all of a sudden like all all the stars aligned, if I believed in astrology, or that everything coalesced, and then it was clear, yep, now's the time to leave New Jersey and go prepare for ministry and spend the life in the parish. And so we did. We moved from central New Jersey to central Kentucky, and that's where I enrolled in Asbury Seminary in 87 and finished in 90. Okay. And you came back uh, to western North Carolina, uh, served two different parishes. That might be a record, two in uh, 25 years. Yeah. (laughs) That's the kind of record I like, yes. And so tell us more about your uh, pastoral work, your, your first church and then on to Good Shepherd. Yeah, the for the first nine years, I was at Mount Carmel and Midway on the outskirts of Monroe and um, enjoyed it a lot. Midway was an open country church. They had about 30 people when I arrived in 1990 on a given Sunday, and through nine years of visionary leadership there, I grew that 30 to 20 nine years later. So okay. the Midway did, did not have a, a lot of growth, but it had a lot of great people. And Mount Carmel was a little bit closer to Monroe. And really from those first weeks there, something just clicked. And they responded well to my leadership. And I loved the work of pastoring among the people of Monroe. And so nine years later, that church had become quite a lot larger uh, in, in a you know, going from about 60 to 180 or so on a Sunday. And that's that's difficult, difficult growth. And what I loved about that kind of work was not just helping the church to grow and learning how to preach, and but the the afternoons of visitation, small town visitation in people's homes. And that's the kind of thing that I long for and yearn for in this current work that I do and the, the kind of thing that I miss. Yeah, I would say uh, going from 180 to where you're uh, averaging one of the the largest in our conference, if not the largest, um, there is a a great deal of difference. Yes, yes. And so in in 1999, the founding pastor of Good Shepherd, he was ready for a move, and I was ready for something different after nine years. And he recommended – his name is Claude Kaler, started the church on a – fabulous foundation and he recommended me to the conference and and I asked for Good Shepherd and they listened to us. And at that time Good Shepherd averaged about 500 in average attendance. 
and it, it was for 1999, quite a contemporary church. They never bought hymnals, and and I had learned a lot about that kind of worship even while I was at Mount Carmel, and it had made some transitions towards a more modern style. And so it was just a good fit. It was a good theological fit and a good worship style fit. And and I, I think some of that, the early success of of that transition, because usually a second pastor after a founding pastor, it doesn't always go very well. But this kind of from day one went, went quite well. And part of it was that 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 small church, visit people in their homes and make sure you go to the hospital, that I was able to bring a little bit of that flavor to this church that even though it was larger than, uh, people responded to. Mm -hmm. And now that it's quite a different church of uh, almost 2,000 people on a Sunday, I I don't do a lot of that in-home visitation like I used to. And uh, so when I say that, that I long for that and miss it, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd say um, that is one of the biggest uh, uh, drawbacks. I, I've served mostly smaller parishes, but when I got to the larger ones um, where you didn't have that time, I missed it. And, yes. Uh, that was something uh, I, I think that a lot of pastors miss because um, many of us went into the ministry thinking we would do more of that. And, uh, and then administration and other things take over. And so now what I do, uh, I sit behind a computer most of the time. Yeah. So a very different kind of work. Um, so what is um, the biggest factor you see of uh, serving uh, a congregation that averages 2,000 on a Sunday? Uh, what, what is um, the biggest factor you see to making that happen? Well, it helps to love to preach because I, I guess I would say that in, in that in in this setting, what happens on Sunday morning really sets the tone for the kind of church you're going to be. So uh, I, I feel like I continue to improve at that. I mean, I've been doing it 25 years, and I'm always learning new things, and I'm always improving. So that would be the the number one factor, and then learning to lead staff well because we, we have about 20 or 25 staff here, mm. and they don't teach you how to be a good manager or a good leader in seminary. And a, and a lot of times the the very qualifications that make you pretty good at pastoral ministry, like empathy and the ability to sit with people for long periods of time in the hospital and, and th- those sorts of emotional connections, don't always translate well into being a good leader of leaders. Mm. And so I'm I'm I have this sometimes this internal struggle of being a pretty good chaplain but less effective at leading the staff. Yeah. So I that think... in, in terms of growing edges that's always what I'm looking for. How can I be a better leader and boss and how can I make sure that all of our energy is harnessed and headed in the same direction? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. That's uh, I, definitely one of the things they will never teach you in seminary. And um, uh, most of the people that uh, I've run into that are really good managers and really good leaders of people, um, uh, they got 20 years to learn it uh, in a corporate setting or something like that. Uh, we've never gotten that uh, yeah. as pastors. 
And I think there's a natural wiring, maybe genetically, that that some people are find that easy, mm. and some people gravitate more towards the the writing or the speaking or the care. It's just very different skill sets, and I think human dynamics and and how you're naturally wired is a huge part of that. Well, sure. Well, speaking about the writing, and um, you know, that's one of the reasons that we have you on the show, and we're going to talk more about it after our break. But let's talk about that. Um, in uh, 2015, uh, according to Cokesbury, you have four books on their uh, listing, and it seems like they all happen very quickly. Um, they're yeah. all on the catalog now. So tell us how uh, that writing came about, and how how you and Cokesbury uh, partnered up? Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I uh, people have been telling me to to try to get published or to write some stuff for a couple of years. I just had no idea how to make it happen. Then in 2013, I had a sermon series at Good Shepherd called "The Storm Before the Calm," hmm. and I knew it was a good series and it had a clever title and good graphics and. I, I called a friend who's not with Abingdon or Cokesbury. He's with, he's with another outfit, and and I put that sermon series together as an ebook, just self done. And I asked him to review it. And this friend from the other group said, "Well, how about if we publish it?" And immediately, my eyes turned like saucers, and I, I was like, "That would be great." And so I got some of my friends praying that this group would published the storm before the calm and i was getting really excited and he kept telling me we have your stuff and we like it we have your stuff and we like it and then a few months later i did another sermon series called the shadow of a doubt and i sent that to him and i said hey if you like the storm before the calm i think this one is good too and we have your stuff and we like it ultimately he told me about six months later we like your stuff. It's just not right for who we are and what we do. And so I kind of had a moment of deflation there, and it looked like I wasn't going to be published. And the reason I give you that backstory is because I had all those people praying that the storm before the calm would be published by this particular group. One week after I got told no by them, out of nowhere I got an email from an editor at Abington Press who said, I've been watching your sermon series, Head Scratchers, hmm. online, and I really like it. And I was wondering if you might have us put it together as a chapter book and a small group Bible study. And so I was like, well, you twisted my arm, but yes, I'll let you do that. Um, but I just thought it was so interesting that I had a group of people praying for one series with one company and God answers with a totally different sermon series that a totally different company found than I w I didn't pursue them and I just love the way that God answered that prayer in such an unexpected way and so it, the ball all got rolling with that sermon series now book called Head Scratchers okay well I'll tell you what we're going to take a break right now and after the break okay. we'll come back and talk about um, all of your books that are at uh, Cokesbury. So um, okay. hang on, and we'll uh, hear from Sally Queen, one of our conference staff. My name is Sally Queen, and I'm the Associate Director of Ministerial Services. By virtue of our baptism, we are all called into ministry. 
This call is being faithfully lived out in the communities of Western North Carolina as people of all ages participate in building God's kingdom. Others are responding to God's call to license or ordain ministry by committing to faithfully lead our churches in vitality. All who are called are using their talents and gifts to follow Jesus, make disciples, and transform the world. The United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina is a ministry of the church for the church whose mission is to build the church for generations to come. We fulfill this vision by investing in people as well as helping churches and related institutions invest the financial resources that God has given to them. My name is David Snipes, and we look forward to the day when you give your United Methodist Foundation a call. And you can find out more about the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina at the sponsor page on the show's website, umconnect.info. And so we're back now with Talbot Davis. I hope that the technical difficulties are getting a little bit better. He is at least answering some of my questions. Um, but uh, Yeah, they all, get, they all worked out. Well, good. Well, let's get specific about these books. I know that Head Scratchers, that was... Um, I guess, obviously, the first one, and I know we um, highlighted it at the annual conference. Uh, you did a book signing there. Tell us a little bit about that one. Head Scratchers was a sermon series that I delivered in the summer of 14, and it involves five of those sayings that came out of Jesus' mouth that leave you scratching your head. Why did he mm. say that, and what in the world does it mean? And so it starts with a look at the Matthew eleven twelve, where he says, the violent bear it away. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent bear it away. And that's uh, week one and chapter one, and then some of his other head-scratching sayings, like let the dead bury their own dead, hate your mother and father, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So in, in each one of those, I take the the particular saying and scan back out, move back up to the 30,000-foot level to see how the odd saying fits into context with the overall argument that both Jesus and the gospel writer are making. And uh, I think it was what, what the Abingdon folks liked so well about it was that contextual work. of And so excavating the scripture well, Mm-hmm. and then being able to see all the ways that that intersected with human life. Very cool. And so um, was that your first book to publish? That was released in May, and okay. then in, in September, The Storm Before the Calm, the, 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 the one that I first got so excited about, because after they published or agreed to Head Scratchers, I, I gave them – the Storm Before the Calm, and The Shadow of a Doubt. And both of those worked their way through the Abingdon approval process, and they were both released in September. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember. Go ahead. The Storm Before the Calm, uh, of course, uses wordplay with that common phrase that we have, the calm before the storm. And right. if you think about it, that phrase, the calm before the storm, it, it it's so fatalistic, and it just assumes bad things are coming. And so I decided to turn that on its head, and, and what if the storm is just the prelude to the good things that are coming? And hmm. And then looked at several of the different storm stories, in Scripture, whether it's the disciples on the boat 
with Jesus or the man who builds his house on a rock versus builds it on the sand. And then probably my favorite one is the last chapter. It's called After the Storm, and that is about Noah, uh, not during the flood, but after the flood in that story. Mm. No one really preaches about or wants to admit is even in the Bible, but when he's drunk and naked in the tent after the flood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't and say so that I've heard many sermons on that in my life. No, well, you can read one now in Chapter 5 of The Storm Before the Calm, and I, and I use that kind of as the, the riff that came from that particular story was, well, who has to clean up, clean up after you? Because Noah's poor sons had mm. to clean up after him. And, and right. um, So there's a lot of applications to that particular story. Very cool. And so uh, I, I find that fascinating. I love that backstory that you had – you know, two books, they were in process with another publisher and basically uh, get turned down. You lead to the uh, the head scratchers one that came out of the blue, and, and now you get to, to uh, actually see these in print. Uh, yeah. Fine. That is very cool. Um, so um, now tell, tell us about The Shadow of a Doubt. What What is that series about? That was a series in uh, the winter of 2014 and five weeks honestly just dedicated to doubt what what would happen if we took doubt out of the shadows and exposed it to the light Mm. and uh treated it not as an enemy but as a friend and so started out with what what is one of my very favorite lines in the scripture where the guy in mark chapter 9 says to jesus i believe help my unbelief Mm. And Jesus doesn't punish him. He honors him. He heals the man's child. And, and so I went from there and said, when, you, when you're honest with Jesus, he will be faithful to show you who he is. And uh, w- went from there, and the other four chapters deal with other stories of doubt in Scripture, including when when uh, Sarah laughs mm. at the promise that she's going to have a, a child in a, in a year. And so when... When, when you say, yeah, right, like that's going to happen, God jumps in and says, well, watch me now, watch this. And that particular sermon series and book ends up with a, talking about doubt's big bang. Where, where do doubts really originate? And jumping off from Psalm number 14, mm. I, I hope that the reader gets to the place where they recognize that most doubt – has its roots in behavior. It doesn't have its roots in intellect. Mm. That the majority of people who decide they don't believe anymore or, or really doubt the faith do so because they're involved in some kind of activity or behavior that that Scripture either either condemns or makes them makes the person involved in the behavior kind of feel inconvenienced by Scripture. And so it's it's easier to live in that permanent doubt than it is to adjust behavior. So the the bottom line of that chapter is that justifies disobedience, but surrender magnifies understanding, that when you follow without completely comprehending, when you, when you do before you know, that that's where real blessing and favor comes from. Mm. I like that. Now, there's one more book on the list called Solve. And, yes. Uh, and that was from a sermon series in 2015, right after Easter, based on 
Nehemiah, the memoir in the Bible, Nehemiah's mm. memoir, and the, the sermon series was called Solutionists, and we because Nehemiah was not a man who pointed out problems, he pinpointed solutions. And so we at Good Shepherd talked five weeks about how we can be solutionists in our own lives. And uh, Abingdon really liked the content of those sermons as well. I, the Week one talked about how most of us confuse our problems with our solutions and that, that actually, for example, people who have a drinking problem, they don't really have a drinking problem. They have a drinking solution hmm. to other problems. They've decided to they just have located the wrong solution to the real problems that they have. So they might have problems having to do with upbringing, parental relationships, but they've, the solution that they've located is alcohol. So I kind of exposed that in Chapter 1, and uh, maybe the most exciting part of that particular series was we decided to become solutionists at Good Shepherd for local hunger mm. and Working with our scouts, we did a food drive and actually set the record in Mecklenburg County for the most food ever collected by a single congregation. Wow. And so Abingdon liked that kind of radical element to the series. They renamed it Saul, Finding God's Solutions in a World of Problems. Okay. And that will, that will release in May of 16. Okay. Not often you find Methodist preachers doing series or books on the character of Nehemiah, and so I'm really glad for that. Yeah. And well, there's is... one more one more that looks like it's in the works for 16 called Brainwashing. Okay. All, all about how, not what to think, but how you think, and how it is, according to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, that we can grow the mind of Christ rather than the mind of the culture that surrounds us. Okay. Well, you've definitely been busy. Now, uh, granted, they're, they're from sermon series. What What is the uh, the difference between preaching the sermon series and then getting a book ready with Cokesbury? Tell, tell me a little bit about that process. That is such a great question, and from my the way I do things, it's so easy because I um, I preach without notes. But I write a full manuscript, so I spend 15, 20 hours a week writing sermon manuscripts, and, but yet I deliver the message without any notes. And so when the editor from Abington first was talking to me about head scratchers, I had all these ready-made manuscripts to send him, and mm. he subsequently did all the heavy lifting because what he would do was take my manuscripts and – uh, watch the sermons online as well. And wherever the online version was better than the printed version, he would make those changes. And wh wherever I had writ written something good that I forgot to preach, which can happen when you don't no, use sure. any notes, he would he would just make sure that got in. So really what, what appears in the books is the best of both worlds that which was prepared and and that which was preached. Yeah, I and always so I, I did I did all I did all the work when the series was delivered at Good Shepherd and then for the putting it in book form I haven't had to do a whole lot of work. Yeah. 
I found in in my writing, and I I used to work for a newspaper and other things. But uh, to have a good editor that that knows better than I what needs to get in uh, always made mm-hmm. a difference. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have you worked with the same editor with all these books? Yes. Man, that that is a special thing. Mm-hmm. So, how, how does someone get a hold of these books? Uh, you know, I've got a, a a link on the website cokesbury dot com and. They've got your name. They can look them up. Um, how does one find your books other than online? Online is the main way, whether it's Cokesbury or Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, or Amazon. Uh, we keep some around at Good Shepherd. The ones that we sell here, I don't get a dime off of those. They go to a ministry that we support uh, that helps young women who've been rescued out of human trafficking. And so every every bit of money that comes into the ones we sell here over cost all helps those young women. Uh, so those are the two ways. I don't think they're in any of the Books A Million bookstores or the Lifeway bookstores. So... Uh, the secret is go online, and there are many ways to do that. And uh, yes. you go to Cokesbury, and it it helps pay for uh, Talbot's uh, retirement as well. So let's do <laughs> yeah. that. So we got about a minute left. Anything else that you want to say? This has been interesting, and it's been good to hear about all your books. And you know, it, it, it's good to hear about the process that this went through, and and to know that uh, prayer can can make some differences and bring some surprises. It, yes, I, the the surprising way that God answered those prayers will will always be my takeaway. And if if you had asked me in, in 2013 when I had the storm before the calm and I felt good about it, but I had no idea how to get it any kind of publicity or get it anywhere, if you'd asked me, uh, do you think that in, in two years you're going to have five books out? I would have thought no way that that is possible. But as Scripture says, with God, all things really are possible. Well, very great. And uh, I want to thank you for giving your time today and wish you the best of all these books and in your ministry. And thanks, everyone, for listening on Blog Talk Radio. And the show is available as a podcast at the Blog Talk page and on the show's website, but also at iTunes. And you can keep up with the latest on our website, umconnect.info. And we're going to be back next week connecting United Methodists and their stories. So thanks again for listening. Thanks, Mike. I'm Chris Quinn, the Assistant Director of Information Technology. The Western North Carolina Conference is always working to innovate and adapt to ministry in the 21st century. Yes, it is technology, but it is also about Jesus and the good news. We take our vision statement seriously. Follow Jesus, make disciples, transform the world. Thanks to our sponsors, the Western North Carolina Conference and the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about them on the sponsors section of the website, umconnect.info. I'm Michael Rich, and you've been listening to Connect.